Yes. Okay. So you've got the screen. So this is screen. So. Oh. going to move on oh there it's moving on so just to say first of all to 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 mention these two Keith Critchlow and Michelle Kodovitz whose contribution to the study of traditional wisdom and Kudimbadarabi in particular has really been inestimable for all of us in my generation that was I don't on oh there okay Okay, so my talk is called Structures of Tunas in Ibn Arabi's Writing, Equivalence, Complementarity and Inversion. As we've already heard in these talks, within the Arabic tradition, we say that two is not really regarded as a number. One is not a number because it's the origin and principle of number, and two is one plus one. Keith used to draw this diagram of the principial duplication of the circle, which is symbolically the one reality, which is the source of everything. He would then ask people, how many shapes do you see? And the answer is, of course, three. The two circles and this area in the middle, which is created by their intersection. And so this illustrates that two is quite principially not a stable or self-standing number. It always entails or tumbles over into the number three, which is regarded as the first proper number. However, whilst it is clear that a two-legged table would not stand by itself, at a structural level, two-ness not only exists in the world, but is absolutely ubiquitous. You know, in our own bodies, we have two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs. Even our brains and our hearts are divided into two parts. In nature, we know that the process of biological reproduction takes place through the, the DNA, which is a double helix, and that bifurcation or doubling is the primary generator of growth. And this lovely picture that I found is actually the first six days of the human of the human embryo beginning from the fertilized egg. You see it just grows by doubling. Cosmologically, in the Islamic tradition based on the Quran, we have the image of the Rahman, the divine mercy, sitting on the throne, the Korsi, with his two feet below him on the footstool, generating from this level all the opposite qualities that underpin our cognition of the world. Light, dark, good, bad, male, female, creator, created. The technology by which we are able to meet today so miraculously is based on this kind of binary logic, the simple principle of the on-off switch. And the new generation of technology that's coming along is based on the principle of quantum entanglement, which likewise relies upon the binary of quantum up-down, of the up-down of quantum spin. So whilst Tunus gets a lot of bad press, when it's um, presented as duality, which is seen very much as the enemy of oneness, as was pointed out by Stephen in the first of these talks when he brought in the symbol of the compass, so beloved by Keith, it is the primary split in the two arms, and this is a picture of Keith, which we saw before, presented with a golden compass by the Ibn Arabi Society on his 80th birthday. And so showing the split in the arms of the compass, which allows the compass to do its job and, to, and for a circle to be drawn. As long as the two arms are together, there is no expression. There is just the one, the self-subsistent by itself. 
And the mirror image is another way of talking about this primary split. And in Ibn Arabi's exposition, it's probably the most important one, which he returns to again and again and again. For instance, as I'm sure you're all aware, he begins his master work, the Fasus al-Hikam, with the grand statement about the motive and, manifest, motive and origin of all manifestation. And he says the real al-Haq wanted to see the essences of his most beautiful names, whose number cannot be counted. Or if you like, you may say he wanted to see his own essence in an all-inclusive created being that encompassed the whole order because it is qualified by existence and on which he could manifest his mystery to himself. For a thing's vision of itself by itself is not like its vision of self in something else, which acts like a mirror for it. For a mirror can show it itself in a form which is provided by the place of vision, something that could not appear to it without the existence of this place and its revealing itself to it. So this is a description of the one essence duplicating itself in the primary split, which brings about both the world and the possibility of consciousness of knowledge in the form of the complete or realized human being who is represented by the figure of Adam. The mirror symbolism is a very powerful and useful way of conceiving of the situation because it allows us to discuss the inherent ambiguity and instability that we have already noted to be the quality of any two-ness. On the one hand, when the reflection is perfect, the image is exactly the same as the original in every detail. And this is what is meant clearly when it says in the sacred texts of the Semitic traditions that man is made in the image of God. On the other hand, the image is not at all the same ontologically because it has no existence or being of its own. It is entirely dependent not only upon the original, but also upon there being a mirror and a process of revelation. If any of these cease to be present, then the image is simply not there. Thus, Ibn Arabi says that everything in the universe, including ourselves, is forever and inevitably between being and not being. It is not entirely true to say that I, as an image, exist. On the other hand, it is not entirely true, correct, to say that I do not exist. What we can say, and I'm putting it here as Boulant Ralph used to do, is he is me and I am no other than him, but I am not him. And here we note that we need three statements to express this paradoxical situation. As I said, two-ness always seems to entail three-ness, which in turn refers back to the one. The metaphor of the mirror, however, <clears throat> has more mileage in it because there are different ways in which the relationship between subject, image and plane of reflection can be arranged. I was fascinated to learn at the end of the last talk that there are 17 possible forms of mirror symmetry and that they are all demonstrated in the Alhambra in Spain. But in this talk, I'm going to limit myself to what Ibn Arabi says in the second chapter of the Fasus, The Wisdom of Seth, 
who was the son of Adam, where he discusses the nature of the, how the nature of the mirror of so, so, so this is from Seth. He says, for example, a large object may appear, appear in a small mirror as small, or a long one as long, or in a moving one as moving. The mirror may produce an inverted image from a particular presence, or it may give back exactly what manifests in it, with the right of the image opposite the right of the viewer, or the right may be opposite the left. The last case is what generally happens in an ordinary mirror, and it is unusual for the right to be reflected as the right, or for an inversion to occur. So, just to reiterate, the normal case is when, when we look at a physical mirror, our image is laterally reversed so that our left side appears on the right. But Ibn Arabi is telling us that there are actually three possibilities. One, that the image reflects the original exactly without any reversal or inversion. That is, the right of the image is opposite the right of the subject. Secondly, the image is reversed, that is the, the left of the image is opposite the right of the subject. And thirdly, that the image is, is inverted, that is the image is upside down. So one of the major commentators on the Vesuvius, Abdullah Bosnbi, throws some light about how we might relate this, this principle to our own situation. The first, he indicates, is where the human being is the exact image of the object so that there is precise conformity and identity with the original. This is the situation, he says, of the vice regent who actually manifests the potential we all have to be in the image of God and perfectly expresses all the attributes of the real. In this case, God speaks and they speak. They act and they, God acts and they act without distortion or addition. And this is the situation that I'm calling equivalence. The second is the usual case where there is the reversal so that things appear as they opposite, as in the case, Boston explains, as the Lord of the servant. In this case, he speaks and we hear. He commands and we obey. He appears with lordship and we appear with servanthood. And this is what I've called complementarity. And the third situation is where what Ibn Arabi calls inversion or turning upside down of the image happens, which Bosnavi explains by bringing the example of the Hadith of the Ihsan. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was sick and you did not visit me. Now here God appears in his imminent aspect and the servant is put in the position of ministering to him. So this I've called inversion. So just to start with the second normal situation of the reversal. So you say that this is true to say that this is so, this is manifested to us all over the place. It is so absolutely ubiquitous. And since I've started thinking about this, I don't believe I've seen a single three-dimensional object which does not display at least one axis of symmetry. And I think that given the essential creative process, probably one does not exist. I've not been able to actually find out. So when we look, so just to illustrate the obvious, when we look at our two hands, they are not identical. They are mirror images of each other. And what is outside on one hand is on the inside and the other. And so for all parts of creation. 
or parts of the body. They are not perfect images of each other, that on the whole there are differences between the hands, one might be bigger for instance, and they are not exactly the same in terms of function. So directionality and specificity do also exist, but they are nevertheless fundamentally images of, of each other. This is the brain, which we again we can see, two halves, which are mirror images of each other. Just in case you didn't pick it up, this primordial splitting of the human egg at the beginning of creation of the human being, this, this splits in mirror images, this is splits into mirror images. This is one of Keith's drawing of a flower where he brings out the geometry of the fivefold symmetry of the flower, but this has just one plane of symmetry here, down the middle, here. And this is from the Alhambra. This is a tile pattern from the Alhambra, which as far as I can see has got four planes of symmetry. There are more complex ones. And of course, a sphere, this is a sphere, which actually has an infinite number of planes of symmetry in it. And so we're looking at, and the same happens in the vertical dimension, as Bosnavi indicates by using the example of the Lord-Servant relationship. Stephen and Pablo brought us the lovely image in the noon in the word be, in one of the talks in the last series, as in the Quranic saying, when God, when God wishes to bring something into being, all he does is say be, and it becomes fun, kun yafakun, fayakun. So Ibn Arabi explains this noon here as being just the bottom part of the circle of creation with the upper part hidden above. So there's a plane of symmetry there. And so just to state the absolute obvious that this reflection is a mirror image. It's not, the, it's not a double noon. It's actually a re, the, the noon is re, re, reversed in order for the circle to be here. There's an invisible axis of reflection here. So basically what is high in the heavenly world is low here in the, in the, in the earthly realm. And this can be, I suggest, a very helpful symbology in understanding some of the things that Ibn Arabi says about the complementarity of the divine names. Those names like the creator, the manifest, the Lord, which he brings out quite particularly in his metaphysics, have a degree of dependence upon the locus, their locus of manifestation of the world. So looking at this mirror imaging, we can see quite clearly that the lower that we prostrate ourselves in prayer, the higher we will exalt the one that we worship. So the more we acknowledge our poverty and dependence, the more we establish the real as rich beyond, beyond need, etc., etc. So one could say, therefore, but where is the threeness here? Where is the resolution? As we've said, that two-ness always entails three-ness. Well, when we talked about the metaphor of the compass, we said that the noon in the middle of the, the dot in the middle of the noon is like the center, the, 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 center, the dot at the center of the circle where the divine compass has rested. So the compass itself is in the vertical dimension. So for a full unitive understanding of a two-dimensional object, we have, to see, we have to see the third dimension. 
Similarly, you could say that to send further full unity of understanding of the three-dimensional world, we have to have an understanding of the fourth dimension. And Eric, who I think is with us today, has, very, has so very lucidly explained as human creatures, we are normally limited to three dimensions and we don't see this fourth vertical dimension, which is the spiritual world. And this, but, you know, the mirror imaging indicates that it is there. And this is the resolution, I would suggest, of the famous saying of Abu Sayyid al-Haraz, whom Ibn Arabi quotes in the chapter of Idris in the Pursuit, when he says, Al-Haraz, who is one of truth's faces and one of his tongues, speaking from himself, said that God can only be known through his uniting of the opposites, which determine over him, for he is the first and the last, the manifest and the, and the hidden. So having done that bit of theory, I want to go on to talk about the two exam two examples of literary tunas in Ibn Arabi's works. So I'm going to start with the chapter headings of the Fasus al-Hikam. So in the, in the Islamic world, the main literary form in which tunas has a structure of tunas is poetry. And all Islamic poetry, whether it's written in Arabic, Persian or other language, is based on a diptych structure. Each verse has two lines and the rhyme comes at the end. So I'm not actually going to talk about formal poetry, although I could with Ibn Arabi, um, but just to mention the situation because of the idea that rhyming and couplets is very deeply embedded in the Arabic soul. And Ibn Arabi, who was a poet, of course, as well as a metaphysician, uses the poetic form a great deal, and particularly in his early works, often breaks into a form of rhyming prose called Sarge as part of his exhibition. So one of the places we find this poetic sensibility peeping out is in the titles of books. And even in very prose-based philosophical works, authors will very often give their works a kind of poetic title, which always has a diptych structure. And Ibn Arabi does not do this very much, but he does in Fasus al-Hikam. We are used to referring to this by its short title, but its full title is this, Fasus al-Hikam wa Khasus al-Kalim, the ring stones of wisdom and the particularizations or specializing of the words. And so this clearly has a, two, a, a form of tunas and a form of mirror imaging, which is brought out by the rhyme, with the first part pertaining to the divine wisdom and the second part referring to the human side. And as we look at the 27 chapter headings, it becomes clear that by these words, he means the prophets, who are the places of manifestation of the divine words, or they are the divine words themselves. There are lots of ways of understanding the different terms in this title, which I'm not going to go into now because I want to focus on the mirror structure, which is definitely indicated, I suggest, by both rhyme and sound. Fasus al-Hikam wa Khasus al-Kalim. And so you get, you very, very much want this to be Kilam, but in the autograph manuscript, it's very definitely Kalim. And there would be something to say about the place of asymmetry and oddness, the deliberate breaking of symmetry within the Islamic tradition, which would be another talk. But there's sufficient rhyme in the Fasus, 
Chusus, and in the whole rhythm, and the final meme, of course, to indicate that this is a mirrored rhyming structure. When we come to the chapter headings of themselves, we get a slightly different but similar rhyming structure. So I'm going to try to read. Hikmat Sabuhia, Fil Kalamat Nuhia, Kalamat Kudusia, Hikmat Kudusia, Fil Kalamati Drusia. So you can hear clearly that we have a rhyme on the ya here, and, and in 20 of the 27 chapters, we also have an additional rhyme of the last letter of the prophet's name, not in Adam, but here we have Hikmat Nafthia. Kalamat Sethia, Hikmat Sabuhia, Kalamat Nuhia. So we have a double rhyme of the Ia and the addition of the prophet's name, as well, of course, as the rhythmic mirroring of the two of the two halves of the of, of, of the title. So these chapters. Um, so I would say that we are definitely here looking at a mirror symmetry in terms of the words between the divine and human. And I would suggest that in this case, it is that of equivalence. It is our first case where there is no reversal or inversion. And the right side, what, what appears in the, in the divine wisdom, appears directly just as it is in the in in the human in the human in the human side and these chapter headings have often been translated in the same form as the book's title uh, <clears throat> the wisdom of divinity in the word of adam and this has been going on since titus burkhart's first translation in the mid-20th century and just seems to have carried on however it is an interpretive um, translation because this is not what the word says there are no definite articles here so this is this ia is adjectival so it's not the wisdom of divinity it's divinity wisdom and this is not the word of 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 of, of adam uh, I suppose it could be, but it's Adamic, Adamic wisdom. And this is the, the breathing out wisdom in the Sethian word. So this is this, not only, so these are adjectival and they are indefinite. There are no definite articles here. So what is the effect of these two things? What does it do? to see these two things, the rhyming and the indefiniteness upon our understanding. So firstly, there is this plain fact of equivalence. I have looked for further corroboration for the kind of numerical and geometric trans correlations between the two halves that Pablo has discovered in Tajiman Ashwak, and he and Stephen have uncovered in the Bosnian poem of effusion. But I have failed to find them, and perhaps I've missed them, and people more skilled at this kind of analysis will uncover them. I also cannot offer an explanation of why 20 of the titles have the further rhyme and further don't. So these are mysteries to be explored. So I'm going to limit my comments to um, the form of the language and suggest that what this rhyming and indefinite does is to introduce an element of musicality in both sound and rhyme into the picture. And music 
and by extension poetry in traditional thought was not just a decorative or, or entertaining element as what I think of it today. It was one of the components of the medieval quadrivium, which embodied an understanding of the divine order, of the sacredness of the divine order and creation, going back to the ancient Greeks, or maybe even the ancient Egyptians, and which came into both Christian and Islamic thought. And after the last talk, somebody, uh, Susan Betchelder, who I believe is here today, sent me a very useful note about the quadrivium, um, explaining that it consisted in this order of arithmetic, which is number at rest, music, which is number in motion, geometry, which is number at rest in space, and astronomy, number in motion in space. And this is the same order and understanding that Titus Burkhardt expresses in his book on Chartres, where he emphasises the importance, firstly, of harmony, which he defines as the most perfect proportion, whether it is in music or in geometry, and secondly, rhyme, which is things happening in an ordered way in time. So rhythm adds the order of time. And Titus Burkhart says this, number, proportion, harmony and rhythm are clear manifestations of unity in diversity and also clear indications of the way of return from diversity to unity. So my suggestion is that this poetic structure of these titles of the Vesuvius, as long as it introduces an element of motion and movement, of time and extension in time to the relationship between the two sides, rather than a fixed or final relationship, which the symbol of the ringstone and the seal, which Burkhart first brought, rather implies, although of course this has great validity given the title of the book, instead of a rather fixed relationship, we get the sense of the two sides being in a kind of fluid alignment, rather as two voices might tune into each other to create a harmony, or two friends out walking might fall into steps so that they start to move in the same rhythm. And in the Rual Qud, Zibn Arabi uses the verb tajara, literally to flow together, to refer to the way that the true knower of God, the one who is the true vice-regent, relates to the world. And when we translated this, we translated it as attunement. And the Fasu's title seemed to me to indicate the same thing, that we have a kind of tuning between these two sides. Or the best image might be, as Eric Winkle has developed, to be that of vibration, that of the heart of the human being vibrating in response to the divine diffusion as a tuning fork responds to a sound or the Aeolian harp plays to the wind. And we might even want to utilise the conceptual framework which has been given to us in our own time and think about these prophetic wisdoms as being like fields, fields in a scientific sense, like magnetic or electric fields or waves which represent non-localised forces. And such a concept might also give insight into the principle which Michel Chodkovitz brought out in his, in his Seal of the Saints. Ibn Arabi's understanding that every saint comes under the umbrella or the, or the influence as a prophet. We might begin to 
to see how we might see that also as a kind of attunement. And this kind of dynamic understanding of the, re the relationship, um, just to remember that in Ibn Arabi's time, the image of the mirror was a much more dynamic image than exists for us today. In our time, we just have mirrors because we have the half-silvered backing. Mirrors just exist. In his time, mirrors had to be polished. They were made out of metal. And in order to maintain the knowledge, you had to constantly polish, polish, polish to, 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 to maintain it, the, the, the reflectivity. Okay. So, hope we're doing okay for time. So... I just want to now go on to such thoughts lead naturally to the second passage that I want to look at, which is from Ibn Arabi's famous work of the middle period, The Holy Spirit in the Counseling of the Soul, where in the first section he talks about the Abdal or the substitutes, who are a group of saints who have a function in the spiritual hierarchy as helpers to the pole, the Qutb. They are agents in the cosmic rulership of the world. This is a prose passage where he jumps into sarge or rhyming prose when talking about virtues of these hidden saints, which he holds up as exemplars of real spiritual achievements. It's 14 lines. I'm going to read all of it um, just because they are so lovely and, of course, potentially so useful as a guide to us. The lines are preceded by a passage in which Ibn Arabi describes how dear these people are to the real and how he keeps them so close to him in his own presence. Then he tells us, he, God, says to them, if a person sick from missing me comes to you, cure him. And if they are ill from being separated from me, then treat them. If they are afraid of me, reassure them. If they think they are safe from me, warn them. If they desire closeness to me, give them hope. If they are setting out on a journey to me, supply them with provisions. If they are afraid of doing business with me, encourage them. If they despair of my bounty, then promise them. If they hope for my beneficence, then give them good news. If they think well of me, be open with them. If they are a lover to me, then devote yourself to them. If they are one of those who glorifies my power, then make them greater. And if they are looking to me to humble themselves, guide them. If they are someone who does harm after doing good, then chastise them. So here, again, there is a very clear structure of two-ness, in this case of express need and the response in what we must assume, given the, the, the situation, is, is the best and the most harmonious, the most perfectly proportioned manner. And in this sense, these passages can be read as an example, another example of complementarity between cre creator and creation, with the Abdal standing in the place of God, these the actors. However, there is a rhyming structure here, which is different. Oh, sorry, I've missed this out. These are the states of the knowers of God, my friend. And in this way is the flourishing of the hearts. Sorry, I missed that. Here is the rhyming structure, and I'm going to have a go at, at reading it. So if you look at this, you can say, 
in latakum alilun min facti fadawuh wa muridun min faki fa alijuh wa ha'ifun mini fa aminuh, etc., etc. So you can see that here again we have a very definite rhythm, a, 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 mirror, a rhythm and sound of poem, except that in this case the two sides are different. All the supplication have this ending e, which is the personal pronoun me, from missing me, from being separated from me, from me, from me, and then here. He, the pronoun he, who. So, so what does he say? So I have the first one is cure him. So I translate this as them because in these days we, we translate in a gender neutral way. So if they, if somebody comes to you sick from missing me, then cure them. So missing me, then cure them. So this emphasis on the me, on the supplicant side, and the he on the answering side. And this is not what we would expect. Um, and instantly, the Hadith of the Iksan immediately comes to mind. I was sick and you did not visit me, where, as we say, the real place is himself in the, in the place of the location of creation, in the place of neediness, in his imminent aspect. So I suggest that these lines can also be read as an example of inversion, where the subject and the object take, take, take change places, so to speak, and that this is a more interesting approach in the light of the unity of being the, and the Wakhdat al-Wujud. So on the first reading, as complementarity, we might take this situation to take a chivalric, noble kind of example, and this is actually pertinent in the context of the Ru'al Qud, which is quite overtly concerned in several places to critique the standard chivalry approaches of his contemporary Sufis. If we take the chivalry approach, we might envisage that this situation with the Abdali is rather like the Knights of the Round Table, who in the court of King Arthur to go out and do good work in the world. That is, they are sent away from the presence they serve to other, which is a separation, to be good to other, which is a separation, even though they are doing it on the behalf of their king. However, if we take the second reading, we find that although these, these people are not sent out to other, but they are sent out to the same presence, they are sent from him to him. Or perhaps it is even more than this, that such is the degree of intimacy, that there is no question of leaving or of otherness at all, and that this need response all takes place within the divine presence, and is just one way in which the intimate mirroring of the real to himself is enacted at his own level. And both readings are, of course, possible. And another insight of Michel Chodkiewicz's was, um, for which I'm very grateful personally, was that for Ibn Arabi, where there are alternative readings, we do not have to choose one interpretation over another, but we can accept the validity of both. As Ibn Arabi says in the Fasus in the passage following his discussion on Abu Sayyid al-Kharaz, in reality, the realities are mixed up and ambiguous. So that's...
No. So, if you need. 